0: Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 86, air date January 7th,
1: 2016.
0: And I'll end on this. is really talking about the fact that, you know, Indians have been innovating for 5,000 years. So what happened? You know, 1657, the Battle of Plassey takes place. The British go from being a trading partner to being an occupying partner so everyone knows the history right you had the pillaging of india the removal of assets but something deeper took place which was a deliberate rewriting of history to denote that we are not innovators so you can be a ceo of microsoft ceo of google but the thought of a dark-skinned indian being a symbol of innovation that bothers people you see because that's changing a narrative so very few people knew about jc bose Adi Bhatta actually did the elliptical orbits of planets, right? But we as Indians, we don't fight for that, do we? I mean, you read Kepler's physics book, it starts with Kepler. Where's Adi Bhatta in that equation? Where's Bose? And these, I want to argue with you, these narratives need to be changed because we're always going to be looking outside of ourselves for who the innovators are. You know, I go to many, many innovation conferences. It's Bill Gates, blah, 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 right? But where is our own cultural heritage of looking at our own people? And I'm not saying this is a race issue. It's much deeper than that. It's a cultural, psychological issue about who we are. And the fact is, Indians have been innovating for long, long periods of time. And so my work recently has been to, uh, particularly in the area of medicine, validate this using even the norms of modern medicine. So I'll give you one of them. Some of you may know in... Uh, everyone know the genome project? The Human Genome Project? Well, about 10 years ago, 19, 20, 15 years ago, in the 1990s, we started sequencing the human genome. And we thought what made us different than a, human, uh, a worm was a number of genes. So if you look on this graph, we originally estimated in the early 90s, we had about 100,000 genes, and we knew a worm had 20,000. But what do you see by the end of it? We have about 20,000 genes. So, the entire notion of Western biology, which is reductionist, reductionist is not a design, a systems view of the human body, but saying genes are who we are. So, if you had the gene for blue eyes, you must have blue eyes. If you have the gene for this cancer, you're going to come with cancer. So, what turns out of the genome project, the irony is, it turns out that we are not our genes. We have the same number of genes as a worm. So, the complexity is not related to number of genes. So, what happened was people started recognizing we needed to go to a systems biology. By the way, this is a picture of a whole human, the heart, different tissues. So, biology, Western biology realized that it was not holistic in its thinking, holistic in its design. It needed to move to a systems biology. So, that's in 2003, after I'd started another company to do email analysis, I came back to MIT. And I was very fascinated because the National Science Foundation said, Could you create a mathematical model of the whole human cell? We have about 10 trillion cells. By the time you leave this room or tonight, about 10 billion cells will have died. And so each cell is a chemical refinery. And the idea was, could you create a mathematical model of the whole human body, I mean the human cell, by piecing together the siloed pieces of information? Essentially, could you... create an innovative model that could help model the whole human cell. So this was the first paper we did. And what we recognized was where biology was, these are what I call ball and stick diagrams. Anyone take a chemistry class? No one? If you take a chemistry class or biology class today, you will learn biology with diagrams. The professor will get up and he'll say, this is a Krebs cycle. In the last 10 years, what's happened is biology is moving from this to mathematical models we're learning how to calculate the speed of these reactions. So the idea was if you could connect these models together, you could model the whole human cell. And each one of these little pieces of knowledge is coming from biologists who are in their little silos. So it's a systems approach. Computational systems biology. Emphasis on the word system. So that's what I built. So that's our recent work. So if email was the electronic version of the office, cytocell solve solving the cells, the electronic version of the human cell. What can we do with this? What you can do is, you can completely change the way that medicines are created. Today, the way medicine is done in a very reductionist way, they take a test tube, they put cancer cells, there's 30,000 potential compounds, you drop a compound, a single molecule, you see if it does anything, if it, if it does then you kill a bunch of animals, and then that takes around six and a half years, and if that works, then you get the FDA to approve you then you go hopefully not hurt too many human beings in third world countries and then after nine years then you get a drug okay and that drug by the way only has ten percent efficacy ten percent okay that's the way modern medicine creates its drugs very inefficient so the idea was could we do it faster because today we don't build airplanes by killing test pilots right we model everything then we go to a a wind tunnel, and then we hopefully don't go, so that's what we did, so we published a bunch of papers. And in 2012, after we published all these papers, we're trying to figure out what do we do with this. This paper comes out in nature, it says combinatorial drug therapy for cancer. What does that mean? Today, if you, God forbid, have cancer, you get one drug, In pancreatic cancer, the gold standard is called gemcitabine, it's one drug that you get to try to hit that cancer. This paper, we don't know who wrote it, but again, Nature's a very respected magazine, and we're the only ones cited in there as having the tool to do combination drug therapy. Why is this important? Well, in our Indian tradition, which was always holistic, you know, which was not about just solving one problem here and forgetting about how it's going to screw up everything over here, because the history of Indian innovation did not come from war, it came from living in coexistence with other human beings and with nature. Period. The Indus Valley for 2,000 years has no record of war. This is a history of our people and it's our culture which we should embrace because that's our source of innovation. If we keep looking outside, we're going to develop models of innovation that may not really work for us and products that may come out of it which have no value to our culture. So in this example, you see this Siddhartha Yogi mixing. In fact, most Indian homes have mortars and pestles still. If you don't, you should get one. But what was he doing? He had some notion of your body, like my grandmother did, and for you, a particular mixture was made. So it was personalized medicine and it was combination. And why is combination important? You see, in Western medicine, we give you one drug, one molecule, and we try to find, the way you do drug development is they do it with what's called efficacy and toxicity. So anyone take Brufin or paracetamol? If you look on the back, it'll say 200 milligrams or 400 milligrams. It took them many years to figure out that dosage because they didn't—they need to give you enough so it has efficacy, but you can't give you so much that it kills you, <laughs> okay? So you're playing with this game. But so, you, you know, so you're giving this much of one drug. What our yogis and our rishis have figured out, why give this of one drug? You give a little bit of a whole bunch of things. Because if you give a lot of a bunch of things, You don't affect, you lower toxicity, and you have a synergistic effect. I'm going to show you an example of that. Um, Throughout Asia, the number one cause of death is liver cancer. India, China, Mongolia, I mean Asia. It's about three billion people. Indians have one-third less liver cancer than anyone in the world. An epidemiological uh, study showed it has to do with curcumin. Curcumin is the active ingredient in haldi, Manjil, I don't know, have you, right? Haldi in Hindi, which is, uh, which is the active ingredient in curry. So what we did was, this is now becoming the validation of our system. So what you see here, this outer circle is a cell wall. The inner circle is the nuclear wall. What, Cytosol, what we've done is, we've looked at, we went through 6,000 papers, we looked at every molecular reaction having to do with inflammation. Inflammation is the leading cause that leads to cancer. And what you're looking at here is curcumin, the molecule where it interacts in all different places. This molecule here, you don't have to know this as a homework assignment, it was called prostaglandin. If you have inflammation and I check your blood, that's at a high level. So what you're seeing here is we have shown where curcumin interacts at the molecular level. And then now we're looking at resveratol which is grapes. So this is like you having a curry meal with some red wine. What we can do is, what happens now is when people do these combinations, no one knows how they're doing them. So a lot of the knowledge gets lost. So what we're doing here is, is we are simulating, 0.15 means a high level of inflammation in the body. I'm not giving any curcumin, no resveratol. Then I give curcumin five, you see that second line. And it drops down to 0.05, which means curcumin has a very positive effect on reducing inflammation. In the third experiment, I just gave resveratrol, and that brings it down to 0.06 from 0.15. Now, this is a cool thing. This is what everyone calls a sum of the parts is greater than the whole, the holistic effect. I've reduced curcumin from 5 to 3, 40%, resveratrol from 5 to 2, and you see it drops down by 200%. This is why the systems of Indian medicine were so powerful, because they learned how to do combination therapy. So you didn't screw up the organ systems, you figured out what worked, but it was an art form, but it did have a science behind it. Far different than giving one big thing, which causes all sorts of side effects. Now, how we commercialized this? Well, about two years ago, we took this and we looked at pancreatic cancer. You see, the drug companies today use one drug. We looked at the top 262 cancer drugs that were used. We discovered a two-drug combination that did better than the known standard, and we got it allowed by the FDA to go to clinical trials. So it's fascinating about this. We did it in 11 months, and now MD Anderson, the largest cancer clinic, is taking it on. Now, I did that not to get into the drug development business, but just to show that I could compete with the big guys, and we've done that. So that's cytosol, but the power of this engine is we have this very powerful way that we can validate Siddha and Ayurvedic medicines and discover combination therapy. And that's called cytosol. That, so that's something recent we've launched. The last piece I want to show: how many people have heard about GMOs? Anyone? No one? How are we doing on time? Am I okay? Are we okay on time? Okay. So, this article came out in MI. GMOs are genetically modified organisms. Okay? What's happening right now is um, the United States' number one export people think was industrial exports, but the US actually's biggest power is agricultural exports. So he who controls the soil of another country controls that country, frankly. So this is an interesting article that comes out last year in MIT saying, buy fresh, buy GMO, which means supporting genetically modified organisms. There's a huge debate right now. Um, this article says that India and Africa must use genetically modified organisms because we have a growing population and we don't have enough farm, farmable land. It turns out that's a completely bogus argument if you talk to some of the most eminent scientists in India. So what we did was in the US, there's a raging debate, pro-GMO or non-GMO? Um, 94% of Americans want their products labeled. If it has GMOs, 64 countries already do that. India already supports labeling. America, three weeks ago, passed a bill denying the states the rights to do that, in spite of 94% wanting it. It's pretty clear Monsanto bought off a lot of the congressmen in the U.S. So there's a huge debate raging. So when we looked at this, by the way, here are ads in news, people jumping around at corn, 94% of soybeans are GMO in the U.S., 91% of corn, and 90% of cotton. But there's a debate out there. So we took a middle ground, and... We wanted to understand, is there a difference between a GMO and non-GMO? What the pro-GMO people say is, if you have a GMO corn, it's exactly the same as as a non-GMO. It looks and feels the same. So we... It's like, what's the difference between the Hulk and David Banner? So what we did was, in the 1970s, President Ford had signed a bill into Congress to support innovation, which was... If you had created a medical product, let's say a pacemaker, and I installed it in you, and later we created a new version, and that took, by the way, seven years to get through, and I created a new version, maybe just change the color, they didn't want to wait another seven years. So there was a concept called substantial equivalence that Ford put through, which was basically if this device was the same, about the same, I didn't have to have it tested in a human being. So what happened in 19... in 2000 was Obama appointed the former head of science policy of Monsanto to become the deputy director of the FDA. No conflict of interest there. And Michael Taylor said, I will just use this law because I'm just making an itsy-weeny-teeny little bit modification to a, a corn. It should be about the same. So that's the policy that runs the U.S. policy on substantial equipment. So GMOs are being used in the field without having to go through any testing, okay? So when you look at this, it turns out that the manufacturers define what the characteristics are. So the the law is sort of weird because if it's around the same from an innovation perspective, and what are the characteristics? If it tastes the same, feels the same, If it weighs the same, has a certain nutritional component, it gets allowed. So what we did was we used, we wanted to figure out what are the criteria. So using Cytosol, so talk about using an innovation now to actually use it for for human good. We used Cytosol to actually model soybeans. And we went through 6,837 experiments, all those molecular pathways, we integrated it. And we found out there's a big difference in GMOs. GMOs actually create formaldehyde, which is a carcinogen, and they deplete glutathione, which is an antioxidant. So this is what you see. That's the system, how a GMO detoxifies formaldehyde. And in the GMO, formaldehyde is actually accumulated. When we put this out, you can find out the buzz has hit all over the internet. And this is, by the way, what it does to glutathione. So there's a substantial difference. No major US media will pick this up, which is fascinating. The uh, Monsanto Funds nonprofit groups, okay? One of their chief scientists, an article just came out that he was heavily funded by Monsanto. The point is that when you apply a systems-based approach versus a reductionist approach, you can f- come across some interesting points. And in conclusion, remember, my original goal was this is the Western way of looking at the world when you look at science. proteins create pathways. These are the words. And you remember I showed you this? This is the Indian way of looking at it. In 2008, when I came back to India, I was trying to figure out is there a connection. That was the front page of MIT when I won this Fulbright to come here. And they were actually curious, why does this guy who's got four degrees want to go back and study Indian medicine? But that was a promise I made to my grandma. So when I came back, we made a huge breakthrough. Everyone know what the Rosetta Stone is? Everyone heard of the Rosetta Stone? The Rosetta Stone was Napoleon found in the desert where people didn't know how to decipher hieroglyphics. And the stone had Egyptian hieroglyphics, ancient Greece, and modern Greece. And they were able to use that stone to understand. What we found was that, and by the way, publishes in an engineering systems journal. We didn't publish in a medical journal. What we found was that if you look at any system, this is a system that's, by the way, that's a space shuttle. That's a system which is a city, that's a system which is a cell, what you find is every system on the planet, every system, this is systems theory in 30 seconds, consists of these five elements, input and output, transport, conversion and storage. So look at the computer there, IO, input and output, transport is a flow of information, conversion is a conversion that the CPU does, CPU. And then you have storage, which is a hard drive. Even you, you take stuff in, stuff comes out, your digestive system processes it, and then you have storage of fat, storage of memory. This is a foundations of systems theory which came out in the 1930s, which is a foundations of Western systems theory. And and then if you add a bunch of other things around this, this is a core system, You, you take the output, you feed it back into a sensor or controller, A goal, you get what's called an intelligent system. The thermostat in this room, if you want to maintain it at 70 degrees, right? Or 80 degrees. What do I have? 80 degrees. That's a goal. You have this feedback mechanism which looks at the output. The thermostat compares it. The controller lets more heat in or cool in. But this is called a control system. And in systems theory, you have a goal and you're constantly moving around that goal like the autopilot. So bot, myth, and top aren't medical terms. It turns out that our ancient Indian rishis were actually looking at the body as a complex engineering system. And what they had actually discovered was you can't look at the body as molecules. It gets too hard, too much data. So they abstracted it to a much higher level. You follow what I'm saying? So, so the rishis and the yogis of India were 5,000 years ahead of what we call modern control systems theory. So in that paper, we showed that. And that became the basis of a course we innovated at MIT called Systems Health, which we used to teach a group like this, MDs, PhDs, yoga teachers, but it was the first time that we were able to prove to the Western audience that this wasn't just some snake oil. This was actually a foundational theory. The problem, what occurred over the last 300 years with colonialism, was a lot of this got suppressed. You have to sit down and argue but it's just in repetition. People don't understand this rich foundation of it. So that was a paper we did, we created it into a course, we actually made it into an application now, and we give it away for free, so you could use it to re-educate yourself as a body, as a system. And I'm gonna end, I think the key thing is when you look upon Indian innovation, if you look at what I saw, what you did with the Cho- Choja pool, right? It's fascinating because you applied the same approach that I did when I was a 14 year old, meaning you went among people, and you really learn what the women actually wanted, right? Even your marketing campaign was not like we're going to do broadcast marketing. You went among ordinary groups. In in 1978, I couldn't do marketing. I actually had to interact with these women, these secretaries. The point is, innovation doesn't come out of someone sitting somewhere and dictating terms. The greatest innovations come out where you're actually among people solving civilian problems. the, the main point I want to make sure when I showed you that triangle is we should not get lost in this, frankly, this alien concept of innovation, which is it comes out of big industry, Silicon Valley, and the MITs, which frankly, most of their innovations, for better or worse, come out of war. And I can go down the litany of them. The history of Indian innovation actually comes out of civilian use, solving day to day problems. And that's our rich culture of innovation. It actually talks about going into ourselves. So I really want to emphasize this, that we don't need to look outside. You know, no, we don't need to wait. look. I mean in a progressive way, right? Because you can end up going in a wrong direction also. I mean in a very rich way that we have a history of, you know, 5,000-year-olds year olds of innovation. So the, the fact that a 14-year-old boy invented email should not be that surprising, frankly. It is surprising to some people, if you create the narrative, it comes out of this golden triangle. But to us Indians, it isn't that surprising. So I want to encourage, as you start looking at models of innovation, let's look at the ways that we did things. Let's look within, and that was really the promise of our rishis that gave to us. And this is not some religious promise, but it's actually a scientific truth. So that's what I want to really share with you, and that's really the Indian way of 21st century innovation. And I believe Godrej has been doing that consistently for the last, you know, 100 years. So I think Godrej is poised to take on the Indian way of doing innovation. Thank you. Should we take some questions? Do we have time? Let's take a few questions.
1: Hello.
2: Hello. How are you? Yeah. So, what I want to just uh, comment is that m- this innovation word is being thrown around everywhere. I mean, people say that this is innovative, that is innovative, but you know, there is. I feel that there is a lot of uh, ambiguity. I mean, they do something different, and they say, this is innovative. This is a good. The next best thing, and stuff like that, I mean why do people like say that I'm an innovator or that I mean I mean that uh, I mean people should say be a little more humble and say it is a potential innovation because unless it creates an impact, it's just something unique or different you have done. it's not an innovation that is what I feel i mean. I mean, the people who create real innovations, they don't set out that Ajku is innovative" karte. they want to solve a problem and yeah. they get it solved. I mean, if it is by the old method or, I mean, applying some other solution, old solution for the new thing, or they do something totally different. They don't say that I'll do only innovative and I'll solve this problem. And I feel that th- it is a wrong mindset. What do you think about this?
0: Yeah, I think you're making a good point. Look, one of the things I think I alluded to is, An innovation, frankly, I think, I don't want to paraphrase what you're saying, but is meaningless unless you have actually someone you're serving, a customer. You you know, innovation is different than working in a science lab making something that you just look at for yourself. Ultimately, whether small or large, these innovations you are actually solving a concrete problem. In the process of solving that innovation, I believe you have to have a customer. So even if you have an idea, The idea is frankly just an idea and I always encourage all startup businesses, get your first customer. Let's say they even hate the product that you create, but you get enormous feedback and in that process you may actually rethink the idea that you created. So I think you're making a very humble point, which is what is this thing called innovation when ultimately it's an aspect of just being a human being, which is absolutely true. And so in some ways it shouldn't be glorified into this enormous task, but it has because for the last Since the industrial era, we started slicing up people. Okay, you work in this silo, you work in this silo, you work in this silo. When innovation is just an aspect of integrating multiple aspects of who we are to actually solve a concrete problem. So in some ways it isn't such a big thing, but it has become such a big thing because we forgot our roots of where innovation really comes from, which is actually in normal environments addressing basic problems, small or large. So I agree with you.
1: Thank you. Uh, uh, What I want to uh, say is not a question, but I'm amazed to see that uh, a scientist who can actually solve a problem at a molecular and cellular level, and you could use the same philosophy and abstract it to a system where you are talking about the academia, military, and industry complex. So uh, I, I was really amazed to see that how you abstracted your knowledge from a cellular, like a molecular gene level to a, at a large system world level. So uh, that's really, really amazing. And uh, what, what do you suggest? Like uh, at times, like being frank. Like uh, what I really liked about it is that at times, whenever uh, you uh, face certain problems, certain resistance in the system, uh, people don't have courage, enough courage to be frank about it and I have first time seen a scientist who is that Frank because I have interacted with CSI, CSIR scientists have been to many many labs and uh, seen what kind of work happen in agricultural industry, uh, university, the kind of funding goes into it. So uh, how, d- and there are voice, like there are people with voice and how do you, like your, your uh, journey says that you are here and then you moved out and commented on the system, but what happens next with the, the way, the kind of nexus that we have, uh, the kind of resource drains that we have there? So,
0: yeah, I, 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 thank you, by the way, for those kind words. Look, ultimately, if you go back to our culture, right? The history of the Indian culture was not about making money. You know, Western culture, and culture is a big difference. It's reductionism, it's narcissism, and it's imperialism. i don't mean this in a negative way it's just what it is those are the elements of it it's very different than holism seeing things that your part collectivism and seeing things as contributing things now in that culture what you start learning i mean i was probably not that different than most of you but i was fortunate because i had a mother whose father in the indian culture ran away with the maid okay think about that my mother had to face her father leaving her and she grew up with this sort of the scarlet letter. My dad came from Burma with no education. So I was always, and my dad's family essentially contributed everything to Sebastian Derbos, okay? So I was brought up by a mother who was far more independent than any women I even see today. People talk about women's liberation. My mom was probably two generations ahead because she realized she didn't need a man. She didn't want to get married. So I was brought up in an environment of realizing that you have to fight for what you want, that ultimately it's you and your maker. And ultimately if you look at what our Rishi said, it's really, we have to go within ourselves. We all exit stage left one day. And I think if you're truly a scientist, a truly an artist, and truly an inventor, there's only two things that you care about, truth and freedom. Otherwise you're living in a you know, minimum security prison. And that's ultimately what innovation is about. So, courage I think is a very underestimated quality in every aspect of human existence if you're creating something having the ability to fail that's courage and history is really made by those people who have courage and i think the environment that's why i'm saying when i came in here into this room you guys have an extraordinary opportunity the fact that a company with enormous wealth has created this environment and gives you this inclusive environment to have this courage man you guys better freaking take advantage of it I'm being very serious because not that many people get this advantage. And you have to exercise your courage. You have to exercise your liberty. You have to exercise your freedom. Because if you don't do that, you're not a human being. So when you ask what runs through my theme, it's because, you know, when I was a five year old kid, I had a very close friend and I wasn't allowed into his home because I was a low caste kid and I was given water in a different cup. I didn't hate him, but it made me think. Why was I treated differently? And you have to ultimately think, are you willing to live in a minimum security prison and let certain people operate this world? Because we ultimately determine what the world is. We have the right to innovate any type of future we want. And if everyone here takes that courage on, I'm telling you we can create heaven on earth tomorrow. That's a possibility that we have as innovators. And that's a promise that we need to make to our children and to our You know, and and, and that way innovation occurs much faster. Human suffering ends much quicker. So I feel very, very fortunate to be able to speak here with you. I feel very fortunate to be able to share this because I hope this has an effect on you guys rethinking how fortunate you are. I can't tell you how fortunate you guys are. You're like 0.0000000000001% of the human population who gets to come into work here every day, gets paid for it to change the world. And you better freaking take advantage of it in the most courageous way possible. Thank you. That's me on my soapbox, but I had to say that.